Welcome, listeners, to another episode of Listen, Learn, and Love, hosted by Richard Osler. Um, we have my friend Sarah Carter on the podcast. Welcome to the podcast, Sarah. Thank you so much for having me. Really grateful to have Sarah. Let me read a little bit about Sarah, and then we'll turn it over to Sarah um, to share her story. Sarah Carter is a sexual assault survivor. She's going to talk about her brother who died by suicide and also finding hope and healing. She's a licensed clinical social worker. Um, and just a little broader, she's going to share her journey growing up with sexual abuse and trauma and her story of not fitting the mold of a typical LDS youth. Sarah talks about how that abuse and trauma was tied to her three marriages that ended. After those marriages, Sarah looked inward with new clarity about the work she needed to do to get in a better spot. Sarah um, knew that with good therapy, hard work, and the Savior, she could break the cycle of trauma. Sarah also talks in this podcast about her younger brother, Daniel, who died by suicide in 2014 at the age of 28. It is a tribute to him and his good heart and turning to helpful coping mechanisms to deal with the pain and reality of his life. She's going to talk about Daniel listeners. And now you run your own practice as a licensed clinical social worker, and we'll link to her practice, Heal, Heal and Heart So Well. Is that right, Sarah? Did I say that right? Um, heart and Soul Wellness. I knew that didn't sound right. Heart and Soul Wellness listeners will yeah. link to that. But our joint prayer is that if you're working to work through um, really difficult things like being a survivor of sexual assault, and just the trauma that brings into one's life, also losing a dear brother to suicide, that Sarah's um, willing to share her story and now through her clinical work is helping others find hope and healing. So you're really brave to do this, Sarah, and I'll turn yeah. it over to you. Hey, that sounds great. Um, so I'll talk about my practice at the end. Um, a lot of the challenges I face are what brought me to this this love and this heart for helping people to heal. And so I'm going to start off first with Daniel. Um, and it's just such an honor to be here. And I just really hope that this can bring some light and healing to those who are on that path of healing and are looking for hope. I know Daniel wants his story to be shared in a way that will bring hope to other survivors and that his life can be a message to others that you can find hope. And even though his story ended Somewhat tragically, um, Daniel had such a love for people and such a Christ-like compassion that his life has been touched by so many people. And actually, uh, my office is dedicated to my brother, and I have people who always ask me about Daniel. There's a picture of him on my wall, and um, people tell me, like, I'm inspired by your brother. So my brother Daniel had this incredible incredible spiritual connection to really everything around him, just this intense love for and respect for human kindness, animals, nature. Um, and along with that, he felt things very, very deeply. This incredible empathy is something that he had with him. And so he had this strong, strong spiritual connection. And along with that, he felt all of his emotions very deeply sorrow, sadness, but also joy and also connection. And I think that was one of the things that was most important to Daniel is the sense of being connected, being connected to a savior, being connected to 
the people around him. And it's something that I always admired because he just had this acute sensitivity to what was going on, like this incredible unconditional love. You know, it didn't matter what what somebody's story was, any mistakes they had made. Daniel saw the big picture and he had this way of seeing people as they truly are, almost like in a sense, the way our heavenly parents see us, just saw the strengths and the gifts that people possessed. And and people wanted to be around him all the time. He was this huge, he was a social butterfly. People wanted to be around him because there was this loving kindness and this unconditional love that people wanted to be a part of. Um, so growing up, Daniel was a straight A student, super gifted academically. Um, he always talked about wanting to be a doctor and really wanting to help people. And he had this desire to really change the world, to change um the challenges that people faced, he wanted to use his compassion in a way that would benefit mankind. And so that's one thing I always admired about him. And in the fifth grade, he was given the president's award for outstanding academic achievement. And my mom would always say, Daniel has a photographic memory because he had this way of just memorizing everything. When he was really young, um, my parents utilized this body works program where he could memorize all of the body and like the muscles everything and he he could tell you he could look at it and he could tell you exactly exactly what he just saw pretty incredible um and this deep abiding relationship with his savior it was so impressive to me at such a young age he seemed to understand how to apply the atonement at just such a young age it's like he had this real connection to his savior and really understood that the atonement was for everyone and that it was this beautiful gift of unconditional love. And he was very tapped into that, very tapped into his spirituality and loved, like he loved being in the scriptures. He loved um, finding God also in other ways, hiking, being connected to his family. That's always so important to him. So along with empathy, that was a double-edged sword for Daniel, as I mentioned before. Uh, very deep feeler, very attuned to people's emotions. And because of that, he often took on the responsibility of what people were feeling around him in the sense that it would weigh on him. He would carry the burden of pain and sorrow when he saw others in pain and sorrow because of his deep empathy. Uh, he became very, very aware of the opinions of other people as well. Um, very susceptible to criticism and growing up in our home, like my parents are phenomenal people. My mother was so compassionate. And I really think that that's piece of where Daniel got his empathy is my mom has this just pure love of Christ. And my dad just really instilled this gift of like working towards a goal and achieving it, um, really hard worker in his life. And he grew up on a farm and he taught us, he taught us how to work, which I, I see as a gift. And I've been able to accomplish a lot of things because of some of the gifts that my dad taught me and I learned from him. But um, the home that we grew up, grew up in was my family faced a lot of challenges um, and there was a lot of emotional abuse that was going on. There was also some physical abuse that was going on, especially for some of the older siblings. Um, my dad has since made a lot of amends um, in our family, but at the time he was facing a lot of his, a lot of his own pain. And so um, 
I remember one experience very, very clearly. Um, my grandma had just bought my brother this orange shirt and he was so excited to wear this to school. And he was just so excited to show it to his friends. And he went to school and a bunch of kids started to tell him that he was gay. And, but in a very demeaning way. And it just crushed Daniel and he would never, ever put that shirt back on again. He was so susceptible to the things, the opinions of others. And when others were critical, it was, I mean, rightly so, but it just emotionally was crushing to him. So he suffered from a lot of bullying in school. There were a lot of kids that picked on him. My brother was like smaller and like, some of his mannerisms people made fun of. And it was really heartbreaking for me as his oldest sister to see so much pain at such a young age. And um, I remember one day going into the bathroom and I saw something written on the wall and Daniel had written, I'm an ugly dog. And in that moment, I was crushed. I realized that my brother was really struggling with a low self-esteem. Um, as I mentioned, my parents did their best, but they fa we faced unemployment, poverty. We moved around actually quite a bit growing up. And there were a lot of mental health challenges that my family faced, that my parents faced. And so there was a lot of um, depression and heaviness that was experienced in the home. We had some really good, positive moments, but there was definitely a heaviness that a lot of us that were really empathic were really impacted by. And so um, this really led to a lot of physical and emotional abuse. But the other piece of it is that um, my dad had beautiful intentions, but there was also this feeling that in order to be um, loved and accepted in the gospel perspective, I need to be, it's conditional, and I really need to be meeting all these things. And from my dad's perspective, I really feel like he wanted us to know that we needed to, that he wanted us to move forward. He didn't want us to stay stuck. He wanted us to become our best selves. But from a child's perspective, it was, in a sense, somewhat crushing because there was this belief that in order to be loved, I, I need to be perfect. And this is where a lot of perfectionism kicked in for Daniel and I both. And that's something that we started to really battle um, pretty early on. So at this time, I was determined to break the cycle of violence. I was very young at that time, but it just seems like when I when I saw my brother struggling, I made this choice that no matter what it took, I was going to break the cycle. And it was, it was going to stop with me and it was going to stop with my family. We were going to find a way to heal. I had this sense that of right and wrong. And I knew that what was happening at home was not okay. And so I was okay at a young age advocating for my brother and saying, I want you to know that what's happening is not your fault and it's not okay. Um, and so this led to a really pivotal um, time for my family. So like I mentioned, some of the stressors started to build for my family and it came to a point where the decision was made that I would go live with my grandma and my brother would go live with my aunt in um, Portland, Oregon. And part of what triggered some of this is um, I was also looking for this acceptance. And I, I developed this friendship with someone who became really emotionally abusive, but also um, I started to 
I kind of started to sink into a depression. I see this as my heavenly father recognizing that this is what my family needed at the time. Um, it was incredible for Daniel and I both. Um, Daniel went to Portland, Oregon and excelled, uh, did phenomenal in school, huge group of friends, good friends. Uh, he was involved with all kinds of extracurricular activities. You saw this light on his face and he was just, you could truly see that he was like genuinely happy, genuinely like connected to his true self and just so happy. And I felt the same way. So living with my grandma was transformative experience for me. When I went and stayed with her, I was like, ah, someone who gets me, someone who sees me. My grandma was a little crazy and wild like I am, uh, outside of the box thinker, very open-minded. And I just realized, oh, like I can go hiking and I can find God. And it was the first time I really developed my testimony. And I remember turning to the scriptures, Helaman 5.12, and now my sons, remember, remember, it's upon the rock of our Redeemer, who is Christ, the Son of God, that you must build your foundation, that when the devil shall send forth his mighty winds, yea, his shafts in the whirlwind, yea, when all his hell and his mighty storm shall beat upon you, it shall have no power to drag you down to the gulf of endless misery and woe because of the rock upon which you are built, which is a sure foundation, a foundation wherein if men build, they cannot fall. So when I read this, I realized for somehow the spirit spoke to me and said, you can overcome the trauma that you've been experiencing. Um, through Jesus Christ, you can find love and healing. And at a young age, like it just spirit spoke to my heart and I knew that there that I could heal. Um, and so there was all this light that I experienced with my grandma and we were exposed actually to a lot of different Face. Um, she was connected with other religions, and so we'd go to Bible study. Um, we were connected with people of other faith, which was really important for me. It helped me to see all the goodness that so many people have and so many religions have, and really gave me this open-minded perspective. Um, I was able to find this stability and structure that really was like a foundation for me in the sense of feeling safe, feeling loved and accepted and recognizing, feeling connected to my spirit, I think for the first time, maybe. Um, I'm sure I had earlier experiences, but it was in this moment, I really started to feel connected to my heavenly father and mother and was started to feel connected to myself. And, you know, one thing my grandma said to me is she's like, you have the gift of forgiveness because my friends would sometimes do some really unkind things. And like the next day like you forgive them and you love them and so she saw my gifts and my strengths which was so important for me because I started to see that there were really good things about me that I had gifts and strengths and that um I was loved and so um came back home we were all reunited and it was a very peaceful time with my family for a period of time um, and then as I started to move into adolescence, I went and stayed with my grandma when I was in junior high. Um, but then as I started to go to high school and even started to really crave, I always craved it, but I really wanted the love and affection of my father. And I also really wanted that attention, that um, presence. And so I started to seek it in unhealthy ways. So um, when... A boy would recognize me or would want to go out with me. I 
I kind of wouldn't give it a second thought. I would just, I liked the approval. And, and so I started to date at a pretty young age. And so I was about 14 years old and, um, we were living in Prump at the time and there was a 17, 18 year old that started to notice me. And I remember feeling noticed. And at first I thought, this is great. And so I started to date him and pretty quickly uh, I experienced my first sexual assault. And when that happened, I was completely frozen. I didn't feel like I could move. And I think part of that is because he was so much older. I think I was afraid of what would happen if I did say no. And so um, and that led to a pretty big disconnection for my body. Um, there were a few other sexual assaults that happened. And then there was one day, I remember he was texting me and talking about how he wanted to be with me and all these things. I remember being under a blanket and I remember feeling frozen for probably about two or three hours where I felt like um, I was terrified. I was terrified that he would find out where I lived. He would come to my house and... He was talking about his, him and his dad could come over in his truck and pick me up. I was terrified. I didn't know, couldn't move, complete um, panic. And so that week, actually, um, my mom, when I called my mom, she told me, your aunt is suffering from postpartum depression. She asked if you're still homeschooling. I told her no. She really wanted you to come stay with her. And the spirit flooded through me. I knew I was being carried by angels. I knew that, that that this was a tender mercy from God. And I was like, no, I want to homeschool and I want to go stay with her. So I stayed with her for about six months. And once again, this was a very nurturing, safe place for me to be. I loved, always loved being with kids. I loved taking care of her kids. I loved supporting her. We became tr amazing friends. And I remember talking to her and her husband, and they said to me, that was not okay what happened to you. I felt comfortable enough to open up to them, which was really the first people I was really able to open up to. And they told me it's not your fault. And that, like, took me back. It was like, really? Like, what? Because there was so much shame attached to what happened. I felt like I was bad. I felt like I was dirty. I felt like um, I couldn't be loved again. And they told me it wasn't my fault. And... So my spirit knew that was true. On some level, my spirit knew that was true. And they really encouraged me to go to therapy and get some help. And so um, I actually didn't get therapy at that time. Um, and so as I moved into high school, um, there was a night where things were pretty rough with my dad. And I remember being very, very scared. And I started walking in the rain. And the despair just flooded over me. But I remembered that my young women's leader told me if I ever needed to call her that I could. And I called her at 12 o'clock at night and I told her, is there any way I can come stay with you tonight? And she said, of course. And she came and she picked me up. And oh, I will never forget the way she took care of me and the way that she loved me. She helped me to see what's happening is not your fault. This is not okay. But she also just loved me in a way that was so compassionate. I just felt so safe. And I knew that that was another tender mercy. The Heavenly Father was watching over me. He was taking care of me, even though it was really, really painful and hard that um, he had a plan for me. And it was at that moment 
that I decided I was going to become a therapist and I was going to help people who were struggling. And she was what Alice Miller calls an enlightened witness, which is someone who sees you, who hears you, and is a supportive presence in your life. You know, when we talk about attachment, what we find is that even if someone grows up in an abusive home where there's anxious or insecure or avoidant attachment, if they have one person in their life, it can create a secure attachment for them, which is really phenomenal. So, um, yeah, so I decided at that moment, and I had some really positive experiences with my brother, one of which um, we would go running, um, we'd go out in nature, and Daniel was naturally athletic, very healthy, very healthy body, just in he was definitely faster than me and he would always wait for me and he would always go at my pace, which I was like, I thought was so sweet because I knew like he could totally beat me <laughs> in running. And so, cause he was a natural. He also loved, uh, he loved risks. He loved um, adventures and he really loved doing stunts on his bike. He was kind of an adrenaline junkie. He wanted to try anything. So that meant he came home a lot with different injuries and things like that. But he just, he loved a kind of like new experiences and especially being outside and outdoors. He just loved being athletic and it was just, it was his coping skill. And that's how he, he managed sadness that he faced. So um, when Daniel was in high school, um, I was married at the time. Um, my relationship was pretty, it was a pretty high and low relationship, and I experienced a lot of domestic violence. Um, but at that point, my brother started smoking marijuana, and I decided I wanted to help my brother in any way I could. And so I moved out of my apartment, my husband and I both did, and my brother came to stay with us. And... Um, when he came to stay with us, he he wasn't ready, um, but I I wanted to save him. I wanted him to have to be done with it. I wanted him to not move on to anything else. I wanted to save him, you know, as his big sister. Um, Might have been a little bit of codependency going on, but I really was in this place where I wanted I wanted my brother to be okay. And so he stayed with us for about a year and it ended up not working out. And this actually led to a lot more heavier drugs for Daniel. So he started using meth. There was one point that we rescued him from a meth house where he was being sexually abused and raped pretty much every day. Um, so Daniel started to develop. He, using, I think, became a way to numb his childhood trauma, but then on top of that, he started to numb from traumas that he experienced from using and the people who were around him that were hurting him and the situations he found himself in. And so there were a lot of highs and lows for Daniel and a lot of on and off drugs, getting clean, going back to drugs. And he was able to main, maintain sobriety for a period of time. Um, but during that time, he wasn't willing to do rehab. And kind of felt, he found himself in this cycle. Uh, for me, I was experiencing a lot of highs and lows going through a domestic violence relationship that was both physically, emotionally, and sexually abusive. So this was adding on to my sexual assaults and my sexual traumas. 
And um, it started to get to the point where I was, I was ready to get out. I was ready to move on, which was incredibly difficult decision and incredibly painful for me at the time. Um, I had, I loved being a mother and I was really afraid because I had one child and I was afraid of what pain that might cause my kiddo. But um, it ended up being the right thing. And I enrolled in graduate school and I was just really excited to move forward with master's degree. Um, so Daniel um, started using heroin to cope with pain. He didn't have coping skills. He he didn't really go to any therapy. So he was constantly using to numb from pain and then he'd get clean and then something would hit and he was experiencing PTSD and all kinds of stuff. And so he would use heroin but he eventually decided to get off heroin. And it's pretty incredible to me that he did this because he did it on his own. And withdrawals are very intense. And the fact that he was able to do that, I think, is amazing. It shows his resilience and his strength. Um, so he got off heroin and actually was doing quite well, um, working a job and just really, really starting to thrive again. And um, he... He had a roommate that um, invited all these people over. And there was someone who started to ask him if he wanted to use acid. And he's like, nope. And he was like, I'm definitely not. I'm clean. No, I don't want to. And then he started to pressure him more and more. And Daniel decided, okay, you know, I'll just, I'll take this hit. That's it. I'm done. Well, it induced um, schizophrenia for Daniel, drug-induced schizophrenia. And he started to experience social anxiety, intense panic disorders, um, PTSD on top of all of that, several mental health illnesses. So um, my Daniel, my brother went on and off from heroin again, um, found himself homeless. There's one specific time where he was um, hitchhiking, trying to make it to Salt Lake. I think he was in Idaho and there was a bridge and he decided he was going to jump off the bridge. He was done with life, wasn't going to go on anymore. He couldn't do it. And uh, there he said to Heavenly Father, okay, he said a prayer. If someone comes in five minutes, I won't jump off this bridge. But if they don't, I, I'm going, that's it. And within a minute, actually, pretty much as soon as the prayer was over, this family pulled up, this really kind, sweet family. And they took him to where he needed to be. And Daniel shared that. And he knew. He's like, I know that God was watching over me in that moment. I know that he was taking care of me. And there were multiple experiences where my brother attempted suicide and there is no logical explanation about how he was saved from those situations, but he just was and very much would say he knew that angels were watching over him and taking care of him. 2013, my brother moved right next to me. Um, at this time, I was married for the second time and... This was also another tender mercy and divine intervention. Um, Daniel and I walked together every day. We talked all the time. Uh, we were huge supports in each other's life. Um, if Daniel was struggling, I'd go over to his apartment and make sure he was okay. And we watched after each other. Uh, he supported me a lot with um, one of my kids was having a lot of health challenges. He'd go with me to doctor's appointments. He supported me in a lot of different ways. Um, and he was a phenomenal uncle. He would always set aside his pain and just get down on my kid's eye level and just 
tell them how loved they were. And he just would spend time playing with them. And they loved Uncle Daniel. Um, the moment he would come in the door, they would run to him. They were just so just love to be in his presence because he got down on their eye level and he he got them and he understood them and they loved they loved spending time with him and he just he just totally bonded with all of my kids and it was just so cool to see this loving kind connection and I just despite everything my brother was going through I just knew that he he wasn't lost and that he had this beautiful kind heart and so um, Daniel's health started to fail because of all of the um, drugs that he was using and alcohol and things like that. And so um, I remember being with my brother and the doctors would try to call him. The nurse would try to call him and he would ignore the phone calls. He knew something was wrong. So he started to become more and more tired, more and more lethargic, more and more sick. Um, but he had a job at the time. And this job was pivotal for Daniel because he was the top agent. Everyone, all the customers loved talking to him. He always got good reviews because he took care of people. And also he knew how to de-escalate people when they were upset. And so he was excelling at his job and had this huge group of loving, compassionate friends. And he was starting to thrive again. Um, really what truly was starting to thrive again. Um, and it got to the point where Daniel couldn't go to work anymore because his liver was in failure and he couldn't go to work anymore. And so there's one day he called in or he wasn't able to call in and he was fired. And that same week, uh, he was evicted from his apartment. And, um, just before all of this, I decided to go to well, I guess close to when this was happening, um, my brother and I decided we were going to go on a camping trip to St. George and go to Zions. And I remember calling Daniel, not being able to get a hold of him. He sent me a text message trying to get in contact with him. We weren't able to get in contact with each other. And so um, when we got to St. George, I felt sick. My stomach, something was wrong. I remember trying to reach out to Daniel, not able to get a hold of him. And so we went camping that night and everything felt off. And I knew something was wrong, but I didn't know what it was. Then my car broke down and we were in the middle pretty much of nowhere and we needed to call a tow truck to come get us. And so we ended up making it to a hotel that night. Again, every, like my kids were crying, like something was wrong. We all could feel it. We just didn't know what it was. And, um, we just got the most devastating call we could have ever gotten. The next day, my mom called me and told me my brother had committed suicide. And um, the grief and sorrow, first I felt shock, but the sorrow that took over, Daniel was like my best friend. Uh, I was absolutely devastated as well as my whole family. Um, the next week when we went to his funeral, all of his friends from his work showed up. And that day was beautiful because we saw all of these people who were showing up for my brother. And I knew that he had touched all these people's lives. And one more thing I wanted to share, there was one experience I had with my brother. Um, he did 
he struggled with a lot of judgment sometimes in different wards and communities, but um, he had this, it was a smaller branch that he went to. And I remember this day he went up and he bore his testimony about the atonement of Jesus Christ and how he knew it could, it could heal him, but everyone. And I had never heard a testimony like that. The way he shared his testimony of Jesus Christ was incredible. And I, everyone, so many people came up to him after that and were thanking him for his testimony. They were all inspired. They were all touched by his love of the Savior and also his faith. And along with that, a few years prior, Daniel was given a blessing that um, said that he was going to heal and reach a full recovery. And so that is one of the things that kept my brother alive. He he fought for that. But the other piece is how much he loved being an uncle and how much he loved his family. I know he fought as long as he possibly could. Um, and I also know that when Daniel passed away, I'm, I'm pretty sure he knew that he didn't have much longer left because his liver was in failure and he was declining. So um, this led to, like I mentioned, a lot of PTSD. And at this time I was a therapist and I was a cognitive behavioral therapist. And to be honest, I didn't know if it was going to work for me anymore. Um, partially I was carrying a lot of my own traumas that haven't been, were not resolved yet. Um, but the other piece was that, um, I felt like there was so much more to healing and I thought CBT is good, but there's got to be a lot more. So this led me on the path of yoga and this led me on the path of meditation. So I enrolled in a two hour uh, yoga training and part of my thought was maybe I'll become a yoga teacher or to see how I can integrate therapy and yoga. So I remember sitting in my meditation class and it was very uncomfortable for me. I also was a runner. I kind of would escape pain by running. And I actually loved running. And so I would I would find ways to set it aside, put it in a container, not deal with it, run from it, and find other ways to cope. And exercise was a coping skill, but it's kind of metaphorical for how I was running from my trauma, essentially. Um, so I was in med this meditation class and I told my teacher, I was like, I don't know if I can sit and do this. Like I, I'm grieving. And he told me to befriend my pain and he told me to befriend my, um, grief. And that was a totally new concept for me, but I listened to him and I did it. And I had an incredible experience where the grief and sitting with the grief and the pain was almost empowering and almost healing. It wasn't as intense as I thought it was going to be. It actually eased some of the distress I was feeling to actually sit with my pain and sit with my grief. So this led me to um, completing the mindfulness-based stress reduction program. And I remember being it was at a full day retreat and that full day you're doing meditation and you do a body scan. A lot of it is mind body stuff. And I remember sitting in this meditation and I literally felt my brother say to me how sorry he was that he wasn't here anymore. 
like his grief for not being here anymore, like his sadness. I knew that he was processing some of his own grief about not being here and missing us and we missed him. That was healing too, because it brought me peace. But the other thing I felt from him was, you don't need to hold on to this anymore. Like you can forgive yourself. This isn't your fault, you know, and you can let go of this pain that you're holding on to. So I started doing more yoga stuff and continued on the path of yoga because I wanted to become a yoga therapist and which was also really good for me because um, there was a lot that I learned about yoga and philosophy that actually brought a lot of clarity and insight, a lot of um, stepping outside of the box and rigidity and really seeing that um, there's so many paths of healing and they're, they're good. There's goodness. There's goodness in yoga. There's goodness in these things. And so um, I was at a yoga retreat and I met this lady. Her name was Patty Reese and she overcame her addiction through nutrition. And she told me that she did it through learning how to feed her neurotransmitters and amino acid replacement therapy. And one thing... Um, I didn't mention is that one of the ways I coped with my sexual trauma is I developed an eating disorder. So um, from high school on, um, I would go from restricting to binging times, periods of time where I, I didn't have that eating disorder, but then I came back to it. Um, and especially in my adolescent years, I started to develop this um, lack of acceptance for my body and almost maybe not obsession, but very aware of my body and this idea of needing to be thinner. And, and so this led to a lot of um, extremes, restricting, binging, and, and it was just an extreme. So when I met Patty, she taught me about food and it was so healing. It was, it was like I, she taught me how to nurture my body and I actually started to feel safe in my body through the yoga, through the meditation. I actually started to feel like my body was a safe place. Prior to that, I dissociated a lot. I left a lot. It was like um, if I learned to just be disconnected. But yoga brought me back to that because of the mind-body connection. It helped me to feel like I could be safe in this space. And so um, I started to find this pace this place of balance in my life where I didn't have to be in extremes, but I actually could just bring myself to the present and I could be with myself. And I started to befriend myself in a way where I started to love and accept myself. And this was incredibly healing because, because I, I was able to find this connection and this love for myself that I didn't feel before. So I wanted to do everything I could to learn about addiction and trauma. So I took a job at the Women's Recovery Center and I wanted to learn everything I could. And it felt like if I could help others, in a sense, I'd be saving my brother or I'd be helping my brother by helping other people. And he always wanted to be a drug and alcohol counselor. So I felt like maybe there's a way that we can do this work together, essentially, like 
I want to find a way to help people and give them the tools my brother didn't have. And so I learned everything I could about body-mind connection and EMDR. So I signed up for EMDR training and it was phenomenal and life-changing for me. We have to, as clinicians, um, do EMDR on each other. And I actually did mine with my brother's suicide. And I constantly had intense PTSD at the end of that session. I no longer felt that distress and I actually let it go within that one hour time frame, which was phenomenal. And so I was like, okay, there's something to this. So I engaged in three years of EMDR training to heal from the traumas, sexual abuse, all of the things that I had experienced. And there's this moment where um, I... I was in a marriage. This was my third marriage. And again, it was a very uh, abusive relationship. Um, extremes. Um, even maybe more than some of my other relationships. And just intense highs and lows. And I, I actually knew from the beginning that it wasn't going to work for somehow I knew. Um and this was my wake-up call. So after this relationship, I was like, you know what? I'm going to take full responsibility for my life. I'm going to heal. My kids are going to know what it's like to be in it, for me to be in a healthy relationship. And whatever it takes, I'm going to do it. So I did everything I could. EMDR, energy work, um, somatic work, anything I could do to help my body to heal. And again, my body started to become more and more of a safe place. And I started to feel more whole. And this is how the atonement worked in my life because Heavenly Father knew that there were professionals that were trained that could help me release what was stored in my body because we store trauma in our bodies. And so that I could release this. And this was part of how I started to become more connected to my Heavenly Father. And I was able to redefine some of the definitions and messages that I had received within our culture I started to see that my Heavenly Father loved me unconditionally and that I had been associating conditional love with my experience with my dad, but actually Heavenly Father loved me so unconditionally and he wanted the very best for me. And I started to see myself almost through his eyes, realizing that I actually did have potential and purpose. And so I was able to heal from a lifetime of trauma through a lot of these different modalities, through my spiritual connection through the people who helped me. It was just really phenomenal. I started to finally feel truly free from what I had experienced. And there's a someone I found at that time, um, she's an Auschwitz survivor. And she, she says that our painful experiences aren't a liability, but they're a gift. They give us perspective, meaning, and an opportunity to find our unique purpose and strength. And I realized I had a purpose. I realized I had a purpose to help individuals to heal. And so I developed my own business in 2019, um, Heart and Soul Wellness. And so our mission is to assist individuals with aspiring to their true and authentic selves through meditation, yoga, EMDR, all of these healing modalities that I was able to find and integrated into my practice. And I dedicate it to my brother and his life. And it's just really incredible to see People who've come in 
and the change that's been able to happen and truly feel like this is my mission. This is my purpose. Um, I always wanted to serve a mission and I never did. And then I realized this is my mission. This is my mission to help individuals to heal. I am living my true and authentic self, what I'm meant to do. And it's just been incredibly healing for me as well. And so we support individuals who are healing from trauma, sexual abuse, domestic violence, addictions, or allies for the LGBTQ community, um, just this sense of absolute love and belonging for all people. Um, and so that's the space that I created. Um, and there's one more thing that I wanted to share, just closing in closing. Um, so I remember listening to conference and there was a talk that changed my life in my perspective. And it was Patrick Kern's talk, Healing in His Wings. And when I heard this, tears started to flow. And I realized that abuse was not my fault. Um, that what had been done to me is not my responsibility. And my responsibility is in healing. That's what my responsibility is. And I was going to take full ownership of that. Um, but a few of the things he said that were really life-changing for me is you are not less worthy or less valuable or less loved as a human being or as a daughter or son of God because of what somebody else has done for done to you. God does not now see, nor has he ever seen you as someone to be despised. Whatever has happened to you, he is not ashamed of you or disappointed in you. He loves you in a way that you have yet to discover, and you will discover but as you trust in his promises and you learn to believe in him when he says, you are precious in my sight. You are not defined by these terrible things that have been done to you. You are in glorious truth defined by your eternal existing identity as a son or daughter of God and by your creator's perfect infinite love and invitation to whole and complete healing. Though it may seem impossible, feel impossible, healing can come through the miracle of the redemptive might of the atonement of Jesus Christ, who has risen with healing in his wings. Please know that the Savior has descended below all things, even what has happened to you. Because of that, he knows exactly what real terror and shame feel like and how it feels to be abandoned and broken. From the depths of his atoning sacrifice, the Savior imparts hope you thought was lost forever, strength you believed you could never possess, and healing that you couldn't imagine possible. This spoke right to my heart. There were moments where I lost all hope. I didn't think I could pull myself out of the pain I was in. I, I didn't even know. I couldn't even see the next day. There were some times I couldn't. And especially when my brother passed away, same time I was going through divorce. And I was dealing with incredible amount of grief. But when I heard this, I just knew that God loved me. And I just knew that none of this was my fault. And I wasn't defined by my trauma. I could create the life I wanted and I could live that life that I wanted. Thank you, Sarah. Yeah, of course. Um, <clears throat> on behalf of our listeners, just thanks for being so honest with your story. Um, I think it gives other people hope that you're so honest about how um, you're a survivor of sexual abuse, um, domestic abuse, all sorts of Things. You worked with a brother who ended up dying by suicide. You've 
had three marriages that didn't work out. You're honest about that, but you have this huge desire um, to change the cycle for in for your family and. And then you did things that were really courageous, like going get a master's degree and starting a business. I don't know <clears throat> if your younger self would ever imagine that you'd be able to do that. And now right. um, providing healing for others. And my feeling is, listeners, sometimes the people that are the best healers, I don't want to say this is always true, are people that have walked this road. So it's not just theoretical. It's not just an academic experience. You have real life understanding of both how therapy, the different types of therapy you've mentioned, plus um, the atonement and how those can work together. And it's a remarkable story. And I am so deeply moved. I think it honors your brother, Daniel. I found, you know, his full name, if anybody's wondering if this is the Daniel that you know, it's Daniel Thurston Carter. Um, you can Google and find his obituary, the wonderful picture of him. He died June 7th, 2014 in Utah. And I just kind of scanned his obituary as you were talking and saw his pictures there and the tributes to him. But you talking about him the way you talked with him, I think somehow he's aware of your continued love for him. And I call this kind of, you know, the bottom of the iceberg, um, which therapists talk to me. You talked I think you helped under, people understand some of the decisions you made and some of the decisions Daniel made were not out of a desire to displease God or do the wrong thing, just coping mechanisms. You know, you talked about craving for attention that um, connected you with that 18-year-old guy or 17-year-old guy, and he may have been looking for different things in that relationship as you, um, and you were a survivor of sexual abuse in that, and and at the time felt it was your fault and it, that shame and self-loathing disconnected you perhaps from God and and led to maybe some other choices. So, you know, you talked about your eating disorder and I sort of look at that like you framed it up. It's something we see at the top of the iceberg in ourselves or others, but just telling Sarah to eat right, <laughs> as you, right. you know well, is not, you know, going to solve. It's sort of like, okay, this is a coping mechanism to deal with you know, all the trauma and all the pain that's come into your life. And then you talk about Daniel's drug use and recognizing that was probably a coping mechanism. I wrote in the bottom of his iceberg, just trauma um, of his experiences and who he is. And I love the way you just humanize him about his great heart and his empathy and his goodness. And in a better world with um, better support, um, better understanding of who he is and feeling a belonging that you're creating. Maybe Daniel would have had a better way forward versus just hard to fit in and hard to feel love. It's hard to love yourself when the world doesn't love you and say kind things about you. So I, I, I'm sensitive to those that may be in a really tough spot that aren't opening up to others about how tough a spot there are and how your story you know, it may say, wow, I finally hear somebody that's sort of sharing my journey and some of the things I'm experiencing. But the fact that you've got on the other side of this, Sarah, you may not be perfect, but the fact that you've broken the cycle, I think is an incredible accomplishment. It's heroic. You may not like that word, but I think it's heroic. Mm -hmm. And it's an indication of your divine worth and your understanding of who you are and extreme courage and staying close to God and and having hope about your future. And 
So I think this is a beautiful personal love story and a personal success story. And people might say, well, you've had three divorces, so your life obviously didn't turn out the way it should. And you've had all, but maybe, maybe this is just all part of mortality and all part of your plan and the things that go well in our lives and the things that don't. I don't think we, I think we just look back kind of objectively and say, I think it's what God would want us to do is this, what am I learning from this and how, instead of looking backwards and maybe shame and regret looking forward and saying, what are these experiences teaching me? And how can I, like you did that one day, just said, okay, you know, this is a wake up call. I think he used that language. And what am I going to do? And, and then I love elder Kierland's talk. So I love this combination of good therapy and Jesus and the atonement. Yes. (laughs) And I think sometimes we, I just love, I think you have a really good balance of that. Um, and you didn't just say, if this is all therapy and I'm just going to solve this through therapy, or this is like, I'm going to go to Jesus to solve my broken knee. <laughs> we need docs, um, you know, and so I love the balance there that you've communicated to our listeners. Uh, more thoughts you'd like to share in closing? Yeah, um, there are a couple things I thought of. So. I didn't quite understand a lot about my sexual trauma, but with EMDR, I was actually able to uncover that I was sexually abused at age three to five. Wow. And so I didn't even know how much this had impacted me, but actually I was carrying that with me. And I just recently uncovered that. And the brain really will only show us things when we're kind of psychologically, emotionally handle it. And so that's why sometimes those memories don't come to the surface, but I just highly encourage our listeners who are struggling with trauma. EMDR is the most evidence-based form of treatment for trauma. Uh, What we know about it is it creates new neural pathways in the brain. So just like with Daniel kept on going down that same road, it's what he knew. EMDR actually creates a new road. Um, So that's one thing I would highly encourage our listeners, but I wanted to share one more thing. And um, this is a text my dad sent me when he knew that um, I was going to be doing this podcast. He said, beginning at age 14, I sowed the seeds for my own emotional crisis, which grew and developed. Unlike Daniel, I'm sure that I looked fine, but experienced great inner turmoil. I never lost faith in Jesus Christ would heal me, which he did by degrees, degrees over a period of time. Um, It took a long time for me to see that our gospel is not a gospel of perfection and perfectionism, but a gospel of grace. Redemption is the word. Our gospel is a gospel of grace. So um, the other thing that has really shifted my perspective, but also helped me to see the goodness of the atonement is I've seen my dad have a complete change of heart. And as he's relied on the savior and the atonement, and there's not any judgment, but for years I held on to a ton of bitterness and a ton of anger. And forgiveness was my way of giving that responsibility to my dad and healing And my dad was able to take his own responsibility and heal too. And I think that's the goodness of the atonement that it's for, it's for all of us. I love that. Listeners will link to three things in the show notes, unless you've got more you want to add. 
Sarah will link to um, your website, heartandsoulwellness.org. We'll link to a tribute you did to your brother, Daniel, and we'll link to Elder Kierlin's talk that Sarah read from. And I'm just so moved. I'm reminded, I don't want to take this in a different direction, but in um, my second book, I wrote a chapter about hope-filled repentance. And after my YSA service, this is a little bit different than your story, but I, you know, some of the couples were sexually active before marriage. And I, the first part of that assignment is I would give them both a guy and a, a man and a woman, the same repentance plan because the sin was the same. And over time in that assignment, I, it shifted a little bit for me as I tried to understand the bottom of the iceberg and what was going on. And and in some situations, and maybe more with women than men, I recognize the only way they need, the only way they knew to feel loved um, was to be sexually active. And they knew it was a sin, and I knew it was a sin, and didn't change her teachings. But it was different than their partner, who was most, it was more about just being sexually active. And it caused me to pause a little bit and um, try to understand the bottom of the iceberg and recognize that the path to healing for some was not the same repentance plan, but a modified repentance plan that include um, a good therapist to kind of get to the bottom of the iceberg and deal with what's going on down there um, that needed to be dealt with so that that person could make better decisions. And um, so it's kind of just a message to those of you that are working with um, people that are working through sin. In this case, whether you're a parent or a local leader to it's still a sin. I'm not excusing this top of the iceberg activity, but understanding the path to healing often includes understanding, and a therapist may be needed to understand what's going on at the bottom of the iceberg to improve the behavior. And sometimes I recognized if I just gave the same repentance plan, in this case to a woman, I further wounded her um, um, and, and it was not helpful. And so it's just, you have to go by the spirit and be thoughtful and not kind of revert to our criminalized system where there's a set, a grid of set um, restrictions or punishments or whatever, kind of like our criminal system reverts to where there's kind of a grid and just be more thoughtful, more spirit-led and more principle-based. That's a little bit of a tangent, Sarah. I don't know if you have any comments on that. Oh, I love what you shared. I think just following up is that um, Heavenly Father loves you infinitely. And there's a reason why we go to these coping skills. And so stepping out of judgment for ourselves and even just stepping into this loving compassion for ourselves, we can actually love ourselves out of sin. We can love ourselves out of behaviors that aren't serving us. We can utilize that and just don't doubt your ability to heal and eventually, you know, thrive. It will take work. It it took a lot of pain, a lot of digging deep, a lot of hard work and facing things I was running from, but coming out on the other side, I'm thriving now. And it's because I trust heavenly father, but I also was willing to invest in myself. I was willing to recognize that I am worthy for the investment to heal and that if I can heal, I can create the life that I want to live. And it can be a joyful life. It's really powerful, Sarah. No one's quite spoken like that. Um, that really moved me. Loving myself. 
out of sin. I've never heard that phrase before. But I, when you talk like that, I, I think that's how our heavenly parents would talk about you. And I think we don't sometimes love ourselves as much as we deserve to be loved and where heavenly parents would love us. And I, I don't think anything we can do can take us outside of their love. Yeah, worthiness can come and go to go to the temple or to fully participate in the church. But, and then you kind of pivot it. I think we should love ourselves that same way. Um, and that may be the path to be able to then, as we love ourselves, even in our days when we feel we shouldn't love ourselves, because we remember how much God loves us, then to your point, um, that love for ourselves um, helps us motivate ourselves to move in the direction that you've moved in. Um, it's really thoughtful. It's not easy to do, and that's. Um, but I think we all can do that, and that's really thoughtful. But I love the EMDR therapy and just the need to create new pathways because I know I get cycled and sometimes have the same thoughts that aren't productive, and I recognize I don't sometimes have the skill to rewire my thoughts. <laughs> Um, and so I love what you're suggesting there. Someone explained it like a broken record. You remember the old record players, listeners, my age where the needle would go through these, whatever, these places that created music, but then there'd be a scratch and you'd get to the same part of your story and you'd hit a scratch and it'd start the record over again. And so getting past the scratch or eliminating the scratches so that you can move on and get past the trauma or whatever that scratch represents that kind of puts you back in the same cycle, um, take some work. Um, but the things you're sharing, I think, are really helpful for to give hope and perspective how to do that. I'm really moved by your work, Sarah. I'm moved by your personal story. Um, I think, you know, your younger self would be, you know, pretty pleased with what you've accomplished. And even though there's some curveballs and some things that I think God would say, Sarah, you are in a great spot and I love you and the work you're doing is so needed. And we quote this phrase a lot, the wounded healer, a minister's service will not be perceived as authentic unless he can, I'm going to read it, unless he or she can speak. The great illusion of leadership is to think others can be led of a desert by someone who's never been there. So yeah. you know these deserts, and you can authentically lead people out of these deserts, and there's a great need for that. So um, thank you for being on the podcast. Any final thoughts, Sarah? Um, yeah, if my brother was to say anything, I think he would just want you all to know how loved you are and that there's hope and that his story is a story of strength because he was able to stay connected to who he truly was. So as much as we can connect with our authentic selves, I, I just know that as the path to healing. And I know Daniel would just want you all to know how much faith he has in you and just that you can do it. That's great. So Sarah Carter, Daniel, I think you're out there somewhere listening to this. And we just, I'm grateful for your work. And this is Richard Osler and Sarah Carter signing off another episode of Listen, Learn, and Love.